So Dr. Rouge's sort of genius masterstroke was to say, well, I've created this new Bitcoin, but it's, it's actually a multi-level marketing company. And instead of selling vitamin tablets and shampoo, you can sell the future of money, the global financial revolution to your friends and family. This coin that's going to go up in value just like Bitcoin did. And the two things combined just proved to be irresistible. And welcome to Fishy Business, a series dedicated to exploring the lesser known side of cybersecurity. I'm Alice. And I'm Brian, and we're colleagues at Mimecast. Every episode will be joined by a special visitor who's definitely not your average guest to share tales of risk, reward, and ridiculousness. We'll be looking for new ways to think about cybersecurity to learn how we can all improve in the fight to stay safe. So Alice, confession time, Laura, our producer, said we nearly did not have a brief for this episode. She usually reads the books that our guests have written and sort of thinks of some questions, but she got so engrossed in this one, and I must confess so did I, that she nearly uh, read the whole thing before finally remembering she was supposed to be thinking of questions to send to us. Oh, well, don't worry. I've listened to the podcast series on the BBC, so I definitely have some questions that I'd love to ask today with Jamie. And it really is excellent, the podcast and the book. I'm so excited to be speaking to our guest today. Jamie Bartlett is an author and investigative journalist. His latest book, based on the wildly successful podcast series, The Missing Crypto Queen, tells the story of a shiny new cryptocurrency, charismatic leader, and ultimately one of the biggest alleged scams of the century. I can't wait to get stuck in. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you for being with us today. Oh, thanks, guys. Thanks. I'm so glad you've enjoyed it as well, because it's very stressful to do. <laughs> so uh, it's very it's a rewarding when people have said they've actually listened and actually enjoyed. I can imagine. And God, we'll get into kind of the lengths that you went to to, mm. to investigate this. But um, maybe stepping back and, and taking things first things first, we'd love to understand maybe how you got into journalism in the first place. Ah, well, okay. So I, I actually started off as more of a researcher, I suppose. I was working at a research think tank, you know, specialising in the usual stuff, online survey design and running workshops and uh, all a little bit boring. Sorry to former colleagues. <laughs> but I just got really interested around 2008, 2009, this sort of explosion of online data that I just thought was, as from a researcher's perspective, it was so interesting all this like millions of data points popping up. And I didn't really see, I saw a lot of advertising companies and PR companies working out how to analyze big social media data sets and scraping Facebook and Twitter, collecting, collecting data they could analyze, but I, I didn't see researchers doing it. And I, so I set up this sort of research center analyzing large social media data sets, I, I, focusing especially on sort of political movements because I was a political researcher. And it kind of spiraled from there. I started getting fascinated in weird internet subcultures, like the, the data, I wrote a book about the dark net where I spent loads of time on these sort of neo-Nazi forums and websites where you can buy and sell drugs using Tor and all of that stuff. And I kind of then became like the guy who studies weird internet subcultures. <laughs> and then I never, I never really looked back. That's amazing. And I can imagine, especially with this story, you get into such detail and obviously moving across to, say, cryptocurrency as, as um, a topic. 
how did you first discover that story? I know Brian mentioned about the missing crypto queen and talking about cryptocurrency and a charismatic leader. How did that first come across your desk? Well, actually, I, I, I did a, t- I, I'm, I'm going to put a boast in it. I did a talk, a TED talk. Check Ooh. it out. Yeah, thanks very much. <laughs> I did a TED talk, a real TED talk about buying drugs on the Silk Road using Bitcoin how it all worked and, you know, the sort of how the market mechanism uh, on, on dark net drugs markets created a like enjoyable consumer experience in what was usually and previously kind of quite dodgy offline world. And, and so I became someone that sort of wrote quite a lot about cryptocurrencies. This sort of 2014, 2015 didn't buy any, obviously, because, you know, I'm an idiot, but a BBC journalist in 2018, Georgia Cat, she's the producer of the podcast. You'll hear her voice throughout. She's sitting at a dinner table party or somewhere and someone's pitching her this cryptocurrency, one coin. Literally a friend of a friend is saying, you know, this, I've found this amazing new coin. It's the next Bitcoin. It's going to be massive. Didn't, I don't think even realise she was a journalist. And so she's sitting there thinking, this sounds amazing. He's like, yeah, the only one problem is the founders disappeared. <laughs> it's like, okay, this is clearly a story. She goes online and starts Googling it. And it just seems the most bizarre thing she's ever seen. She calls me up and says, I've come across this weird cryptocurrency with a missing founder that is apparently worth billions, but no one knows where she is. I reckon we could make a podcast out of this. And it all started from there. Jamie, I think to properly tell the story, I think unless you've been living under a rock, you kind of know what Bitcoin is, but but maybe just explain what these additional cryptocurrencies and coins actually are and where they fit into the sort of overall ecosystem. And then maybe if you can just throw in a, a quick definition of, of multi-level marketing as well. Oh, man. All right. Okay. <laughs> well, I've had all my coffees for the day, so I should be able to do this. <laughs> Well, so if everyone, most people know now uh, Bitcoin as being the kind of the original old school um, uh, digital cash. Uh, 21 million Bitcoin uh, are, is, a, is a basically a sort of a fixed supply digital currency. It's, a, it's based on this blockchain technology, which is an add-only ledger. So anyone around the world can really download a, a virtual wallet and send these virtual coins to each other. And it's it's actually incredibly secure and safe. And it's quite an interesting, I mean, I find it to be a fascinating new sort of form of currency. Um, but by 2011, 2012, lots of sort of rival Bitcoins popped up because the person that created Bitcoin had made it open source, written this code where everyone could see how he or she had designed Bitcoin to work. And so it was relatively easy for people to say, oh, that's a brilliant idea. I really like the way you know, you have this special mining system. So new coins are generated at a pre-programmed rate. And this is how we sort of make sure they're all secure. But I'd like to tweak it. So it's not 21 million coins in circulation. It's going to be 100 billion coins in circulation. Or I'd like to tweak it so that the, the rate at which they're produced is slightly different. And this sort of explosion of all these new alternative cryptocurrencies, of which I think there's now 16,000 of them, um, the numbers changing constantly. So, so we've got the old school Bitcoin, but we've got loads of different ones, all with tweaks and variations. Ruja comes along in 2014 and says, yeah, I've got my own one as well. Uh, Bitcoin's really technical. It's really complicated. It's for techies and nerds. The security's really hard. And because it's 
a bit anarchic and no no one really controls it criminals use it and drug dealers use it and so i'm going to design it make a few tweaks make it safer more secure simpler to use but here's the real genius i'm going to sell it not on a marketplace like bitcoin where you can go online and trade bitcoin with euros and dollars and sterling you're going to buy my coin through multi-level marketing and multi-level marketing is um it's a system of sales where you you would you you as a seller would would buy a load of products have a little party around your house try and convince your friends and family to buy those products from you you'll get a small commission for each sell, sale that you make and then you try and recruit your friends and family to sell as well to their friends and family. Then you make a commission on everyone below you that you recruit. And this is, uh, I mean, over 100 million people around the world do this multi-level marketing, but no one had really done it with cryptocurrency. So Dr. Rouge's sort of genius masterstroke was to say, well, I've created this new Bitcoin, but it's, it's actually a multi-level marketing company. And instead of selling vitamin tablets and shampoo, you can sell the future of money, the global financial revolution to your friends and family, this coin that's going to go up in value just like Bitcoin did. And the two things combined just proved to be irresistible. The, the distinction between a kind of legal uh, multi-level marketing scheme and an illegal pyramid scheme. Some critics would say, oh, they're actually more similar than they are different. But the distinction in law is usually if you're selling real products to real people, that's fine. If you're selling a kind of investment scheme that's there's no substance to it at all and all the money is being made by the commissions from recruiting new people who are selling to new people who are selling to new people but no one's actually getting any real product of any value it's an illegal pyramid scheme so it sounds like with dr ruja that she must have been a very interesting character to be able to gain that many followers to have people trust in her essentially of you know somebody that they necessarily don't know what did you find out about her from your investigations and what were your thoughts on her? Yeah, Dr. Rouge Ignatius was a very interesting woman. I mean, she's um, she's incredibly well-educated. She's got a degree. This is all real. I mean, I could sort of confirmed all of this. She's got a degree from Oxford University, a PhD in, in law. She spent four or five years working at a top consultancy firm. Uh, a, a, a previous teacher said that she was the smartest student he'd ever taught. You know, she's, a, I mean, an incredibly smart and motivated individual. And she stood out really in the crypto world as not only as a woman. So she was one of the first sort of female founders of a big cryptocurrency, which I think for some investors was really appealing. At last, we've seen a, a female founder in a, in a, in a male dominated industry. Um, she also appeared very like she was from a different universe to most of these crypto founders. They are very technical, very geeky. They're into the sort of the, 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 the mechanics of how cryptography works from a particular techie industry. She's from somewhere totally different. Business, banking, finance, above board. She used to say to people, Satoshi Nakamoto, the designer of, of Bitcoin, he, no one even knows who he is. 
some anonymous random internet user. Look at me, here I am, I'm standing right in front of you. Here's my degree certificate from Oxford University. Now, in a, in a world where most people don't really understand the technology, they don't really understand why cryptocurrency X is more trustworthy than cryptocurrency Y, her like, if you almost traditional forms of, of gaining trust, my degree certificates, my public persona, my displays of wealth, was enough for people because they didn't get the mechanics of the tech, but they knew that they could trust someone who had a degree from Oxford University. And so she played on that really. I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous, but for a lot of investors, they were looking just to make a lot of money quite quickly. And she seemed credible. I mean, what's, what's really striking there is the power of FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out. Um, as you say, most of those one coin investors saying that they actually didn't understand the technology, but they'd kind of heard about Bitcoin, regretted not kind of getting on that bandwagon early. And here was this opportunity to, you know, the second chance, as it were. Would you agree with that assessment? Or is, is there another way of looking at that? No, honestly, Brian, I, I years of working on this, I've come to the exact conclusion that you just said. I've, tried, I've been trying to think about for so long, why did so many people trust this? Yes, yes, everything I've said, I understand why it was confusing, but there were warning signs. There were like incredible promised returns investing in one coin. You know, you could put X amount of money in and pretty guaranteed a year later, you're going to have like a thousand percent more. Warning signs were there. And there were people online warning about it too. So I've always been thinking, why did so many people go for this? And I think it was fear of missing out. Literally the thing, like FOMO was the driving motivator. It wasn't just greed. Um, it, was the, it was the fear that other people were getting rich easily. Almost a sense of injustice about it. Like my friend David down the road, he's an idiot. And yet he's got a Lamborghini. It's not fair. Why, do, why haven't I had this opportunity? And, and I missed Bitcoin and this is my chance. I got lucky. Most of the people that invested put in maybe 5,000 euros. They weren't institutional investors putting in millions. So they weren't doing all the checks that a big company would do. They were just hoping for once, maybe I can change my life. They didn't, they weren't, ha they weren't happy with 10% returns because that's not going to transform your life. They feared missing Bitcoin, the second Bitcoin. And what it did was, I think it just meant all the sort of the critical faculties you'd expect to use when putting your money into something like this were sort of overpowered by this irrational fear that you were going to miss out. Humans are famously like loss averse. Uh, we fear losing something we have more than we value gaining something we don't have. But in this, it was almost reversed because I think the loss was the loss of transforming your life easily. And people feared that so much. You allude to citizen journalists and armchair investigators at the beginning of the book. Can you, can you maybe tell us why you, you've done that? Because um, these are people yeah. who obviously weren't caught up in this and they were looking at this with a skeptical eye. I think the BBC's podcast series, we probably didn't cover this enough, but all the while that one clone was going from two almost from like the month after it started in late 2014 there were a group of really quite brave outspoken critics posting online particularly on a niche little forum called behind mlm 
which basically said this whole thing stinks. This is not what it claims to be. Uh, and they would, there'd probably be 20 to 30 of them that would post very regularly on this old, quite old fashioned looking forum, trying to piece together what this, you know, what this company was about, how it worked, who was really behind it, how the business model worked. Um, and, and started trying to warn investors. They tried to close down events. They would phone up event organizers when they'd see them online and say, you do realize this is a Ponzi scheme. They would phone up banks and say, we think your money that's coming in, this is all a Ponzi scheme. And this is, this is when the scam is at, in full swing. 2015, 2016, billions of euros are pouring in. No one's been arrested. And it's actually incredibly brave to do that. Even when we made the podcast in 2019, you know, the BBC, we've got lawyers who are checking everything and we're doing all the sort of the typical journalistic stuff. These guys didn't have any of that protection. They're just out there trying to call this out. And some of them were really fearful. They were getting very, very paranoid. And I understand that because I got very paranoid as well. You know, one person will be checking under his car every morning when he went to work, convinced that some like there was a bomb was going to be put under there. Another one was worried about being shot. One of these ordinary guys who checked bitcoins was a Bitcoin investor who really loves Bitcoin, but did the sort of technical checks to work out that one coin's blockchain was uh, was not what it claimed to be. He was worried about getting shot. He was like basically sort of cowering away somewhere in a in a. <laughs> In like a, in, a, in, in a small secluded cabin. And these are just ordinary people that are taking it upon themselves to try and call this out, which is very scary when you see this woman with all this money and she's doing these big events and no one seems to be saying anything about it. And it was a really good example for me of how regulators can be very, very slow, can take them months or years to catch up with these things. Ordinary citizen journalists can be very, very fast but they've got to be, but they've got to be quite brave. And they, they can sometimes, they probably don't always use the language that a regulator does. They're a bit loose. They're a bit aggressive. They scream and shout sometimes because they're angry. And then I think sometimes journalists like me and maybe potential investors look at those critics and think, oh, they're all mad. They're all screaming and shouting. Their website looks quite cheap. And we just dismiss them as a result, but they're an incredibly valuable source of information. And when the regulators finally got round to acting on this, they would often go to that website and realize there were literally tens, if not hundreds of thousands of posts made by these ordinary citizen journalists documenting every tiny little bit of this scam. And I think on that note as well, as you mentioned, incredibly brave and courageous knowing that you could be putting your life at risk by essentially sticking your head above the parapet and raising claims and um, sourcing information that say for example these large organizations may not want others to to hear and see in terms of that connection with the internet and as you mentioned posting these things on the internet do you find that has changed your behavior around how you interact with the internet, for example, and staying safe and protecting yourself? Well, I've always probably been more careful than the ordinary person because of the research I've done and the background that I've, I've, I've um, 
the sort of kind of background that I come from, you know, once as soon as I did my book about the dark net, I suddenly started being very aware of just how much personal information is out there about you and what happens to it. And once it's captured, it's sort of out there forever. But, but when I first, when we first started making the podcast, we did have quite a lot of security advice about things to do. Like make sure you've, you've sort of disconnected on social media from friends and family. Because one of the things people will try to do to leverage against you is get information about your friends and family, which they can find you or basically find your social graph online, start causing trouble for those people. So I had to, I think all my friends and family were really offended. I suddenly like unfollowed them all and <laughs> shut down accounts and all of that stuff. So I, I definitely became a lot more, a lot more careful and a lot less visible. The problem is when you're a journalist or you're selling a book I've got to I've got to go online and tell people hi everyone come to Bristol Waterstones please because I'm doing a book launch there so there's a limit that of how secretive I can ever be which is a little bit scary but you, you obviously try to manage it one thing in the book that I think was a surprise to me a genuine surprise even for someone that works in this a little bit is we found that the Dr Rouge disappeared in October 2017 and we think we obviously were trying to find her and we're looking we're looking through her brother's Instagram posts, looking for clues. Can we find anything at all? And the brother's been arrested, but his Instagram was still open at the time. And we found one slightly suspicious looking photograph. It was his birthday. It was February 2018, five months after she's disappeared. And it's like, happy birth. Thanks for all the happy birthday wishes. And he's tagged it in Sofia, Bulgaria. But in the background, we can tell it's not Bulgaria. It looks more like the Middle East or the Gulf. And I draft in this open source specialist from the BBC to say, do you reckon you could help us work out which, which city this, this might be in based on the buildings in the background? Well, not only did he tell us that, he managed to find the address of the house that this guy had posted his Instagram picture from. And he was like, it's in the back garden of that house, that address. And we're like, oh my God, that could be a secret Dubai mansion that Dr. Rouge has been hiding out at, literally because of one Instagram post. Because he looks at all the buildings in the background and then he starts like doing this kind of basic geometry and line of sight. And he starts mapping up using reverse image search and Google satellite imagery stuff to like find individual trees and individual buildings like and houses, residential houses. There's a little lake in the background. He finds that and he works out exactly where the house was. And uh, I won't tell you everything that happens in the book as a result, but I just could not believe that one photograph from someone's back garden could reveal your home address. So I now am so careful when I post a picture because if someone wants to find out where I actually live, they, they could be able to, from the trees in the background, they might be able to work that out. So I never, ever post anything like that anymore. That's just absolutely incredible. I mean, the book and the podcast are just filled with some absolutely amazing anecdotes all kinds of things which which we just don't have time to get into now so we can just strongly advise people to listen to the podcast if they if they haven't or, or certainly get the book uh, jamie yeah we could talk to you for hours i suppose um but thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today we always like to end our episodes by asking our guests three simple questions 
So Jamie, looking back over your career, what's maybe the one insight that you'd wish you'd learned sooner or that you could go back and tell your younger self? I know this is going to sound a little bit trite. Um, honestly, it is, it is that nobody really knows what they're actually doing. I, I spent my whole... When I was younger and I was first getting into it, I just thought that everyone who was more senior than me just knew what they were doing and, and just, I didn't. <laughs> but as the older I get, the more I realize no one really knows what they're doing. And a lot of people are bluffing a lot of the time. And what I wish I'd been able to do is, I suppose it's what I did a little bit, but I didn't know I was doing it, was to try to develop some technical skill, some technical bit of expertise. And I did it through social media analysis methods that could allow me to go to people and say, well, you really can't do any of this. So you might be able to bluff, but I know you don't know about this and I can help you understand it. I can, and so it was like, just to, just to realize that people didn't know what they would, I'm, I'm sure you guys know exactly what you're doing. Um, of course, of course. But I, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> but I, I still don't really, I still don't. And then when, so when someone comes to me with this technical knowledge or some technical specialism, I'm always, always open to listening to what they've got to say or how they can help. So it was those, those two things that I know that's probably not the sort of advice you were thinking of, but that's why I always tell younger people who are getting into this. What are you reading or listening to at the moment? And is there anything that you'd recommend for our listeners apart from your book and podcast, of course? <laughs> there is, um, have you noticed just how many stories there are now about true crime uh, true, you know, scammers investigations and all the rest of it I, I think I might have been just ahead of the curve but not by very much um, with the crypto queen story so I obviously have to to read to read and listen to all of those of course I mean money men by Dan McCrum the Lazarus heist by by Jeff White who I think was on this program recently wasn't he so yeah yeah, yeah exactly so all of that stuff, of course. But what I tend to actually do is I try, the best insights I ever have into technology is nearly always from books that aren't really about technology at all. Like much, much older books, more, more deep thinking books. So to bring the mood down a little bit, one of the greatest books I ever read, I was actually like live tweeting it, was The Origins of Totalitarianism by Hannah Arendt. I mean, it's nothing to do with technology at all. But it, it's really about how how political systems are created, how authoritarian political systems are created. And you just read through it and you see so many interesting insights about broader social dynamics. And you can see them playing out in the technology world as well. But we often, when we write about technology, we are obsessed with the actual tech rather than like what are the bigger power, you know, the bigger power dynamics at play. So I try to read older books that are not about tech in order to understand tech, if that makes sense. Oh, fantastic. Well, it's definitely a new book recommendation for our book list. We've got a reading list that we're collecting up from the podcast at the moment. It's a so big we've had one. Some, it's a some big great book. ones <laughs> from, uh, I think it was the Gruffalo all the way to totalitarianism. So uh, yeah, we'll definitely have to, <laughs> have to start working our way through. And maybe looking towards the future, for example, what do you think will happen with this case? Will Dr. Ruja be found or face justice, do you think? Um. There's a couple of ways of looking at that. I mean, the first is just on her personally. She's now, as of last month, she appeared on the Europol uh, most wanted list. There is now an Interpol red notice out for her arrest. 
the German authorities have also issued a, 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 a warrant for her arrest and have asked for information from members of the public, and they've had 30 pieces of information already. So the, 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 net, is, the net is drawing in on her, uh, and, I, and I think that she eventually the authorities will catch up with her. And the FBI are also on this case, and I'm sure you know already, the FBI don't, once, you, once they've decided they want to lock on to you, they never forget. They are like the internet. They'll just keep going forever if, if, it, if that's how long it takes. So I think that I think, I think justice will catch up with her eventually. The difficulty then, and it's already a problem now, is the money, the investors' money. I mean, we're talking about potentially billions of euros that's been stolen, tied up, frozen in bank accounts, in, ha in assets, in companies she owns, secretive offshore structures all over the world. And that's money from ordinary people. And they would love to get even a small fraction of that back. How the, 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 it takes such a long time to identify financial assets like that. And then even longer to work out how do you even start redistributing it back to the people that invested. And that process could go on for years and years and years. But there's hope, you know, something could come of that. But that, that is where I'd like to see the focus next. Like, can we work out how victims of investment scams actually get the money back? Because it is possible, but it's just, it's so difficult. Jamie, this really has been a fascinating story with, you know, both technology and, you know, very strong kind of uh, human interest element to it. So where can our listeners learn more? Where can they get the book? When is the book out? Uh, well, um, they obviously they can go straight to the BBC's uh, podcast series, The Missing Crypto Queen, available on all the usual. I don't know. There's a, what, what, what saying do you have available on all good provider platforms or whatever? <laughs> Everyone has their own little. Wherever you may be listening. Wherever you, to this. Exactly. Wherever you <laughs> listen to your podcast. So you can get it on all of those ones. The, the, the book, The Missing Crypto Queen, is also now out, available in all good and bad bookstores. <laughs> so, um, and then to be honest as well, like online, you will just, you just Google it and you'll enter a world of like, some people got really into the story. So I'd even see some listeners who I'd see on Twitter posting about it suddenly then turn up on that weird niche forum I mentioned earlier behind MLM, who'd got so into it that they were then posting on behind MLM trying to add to the story. So if you really into the story, there's there's a thousand places online you'll find um, to just get to sort of delve deeper. That's absolutely brilliant, and I guess you could go as as deep as as you would like to as your interest goes. So uh, definitely for our listeners, we would absolutely 100% recommend listening to the podcast or buying the book, for example. Um, it's just been absolutely fascinating. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. No, thank you very much indeed for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you also to all of our listeners for joining us on this week's Fishy Business. It's really been a pleasure to have you with us. If you have enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes or wherever you're hearing this. And feel free to follow us on our Twitter page at Mimecast if you'd like to learn more about what we discussed. Until next time, 